So I'm happy to continue um, this morning, um, especially happy to continue having my outline of my talk have <laughs> <laughs> reappeared magically. <laughs> um, to talk uh, for a second week about the Bodhisattva, and the, 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 this wonderful figure that we actually now have around us in, in many ways, the Bodhisattva being the Buddhist figure that symbolizes the connection of um, inner work, inner spiritual practice with helping others. This wonderful uh, model, archetype, uh, visionary, imaginative um, support, resource, I think for for many of us and and especially for our times. And so I want to continue to talk about the Bodhisattva. I'll review a little bit of where we were last time, for those who weren't here last time. And mostly, I'll continue to explore uh, some of the qualities of the bodhisattva, some of the areas that we can actually significantly work on and train for to become bodhisattvas ourselves. And if, if you have another preferred word than bodhisattva, you can, ha- you can use that. You can, uh, as, as I mentioned last time, there's this beautiful resonance with many of the most powerful images in Western culture and in indigenous culture as well. This, this uh, sense that we find with the Jewish prophets or with Jesus or with um, you know, Martin Luther King or Dorothy Day or uh, Mother Teresa, people who dedicate themselves to making that connection. And it's just this wonderful, uh, wonderful inspiration. Uh, I want to just uh, quote uh, quote something from quote uh, Joanna Macy, who's a, a contemporary bodhisattva who lives in the Bay Area and um, teaches often at Spirit Rock, and she she said this as a, as a way of expressing the intention of the bodhisattva: the gate of the Dharma does not close us close behind us to secure us in a cloistered existence, aloof from the turbulence and suffering of the world, so much as it leads us out into a life of risk for the sake of all beings. As many Dharma brothers and sisters discover today, the world is our monastery. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, that's the, the inspiration. I mentioned last time that the Bodhisattva is this figure, literally, as you see in the handout, literally meaning a being uh, oriented towards awakening or uh, enlightenment. The Bodhisattva is a figure with a history in the last several thousand years of Buddhism that uh, is expressed most fully in the Mahayana tradition, the, tradi- the Buddhist traditions uh, originally in India, but ne- uh, in the last period of time in uh, northern Asia. Uh, Tibet, China, Japan, uh, Korea, uh, Vietnam. And there it manifests in these uh, images. All the images, uh, all three of these images of the Bodhisattva, the images of Kuan Yin as the Bodhisattva of compassion, the image of Manjushri with the sword that cuts through delusion as the Bodhisattva who helps with discriminating wisdom, And we have these other bodhisattvas that were identified almost as archetypal figures that could inspire us. Uh, um, Samantabhadra, the bodhisattva of skillful action in the world. Or Tasita Garba, who becomes Jizo in Japan, who is the bodhisattva who helps those who are uh, vulnerable and in need. And this archetypal model, I think, also points to the way that these can inspire us, that we may feel resonance with one of these images. We may feel that we're more attuned towards being uh, working out of compassion or working to help those uh, who are vulnerable. Or we may, we may feel, I'm the person with the sword of discriminating wisdom, you know, who, you know, who, who might be maybe in your family or in your, in your organization. You might be the truth teller. You might be the person who speaks up when no one else is speaking and says, this is not right, or this is, um, this is what I'm seeing, you know, and everyone else is silent. That's, that's a kind of incarnation of the bodhisattva of discriminating wisdom. 
or you might be particularly responsive to the suffering of others, and that would be Kuan Yin or Avalokitesvara. And so the, the Bodhisattva um, is at once an archetypal figure, as in these beings. It's a figure that can be uh, very much in ourselves, and is also a figure that manifests in some of our uh, well-known and beloved uh, human heroes, like the Dalai Lama or um, um, Dorothy Day or Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma, who you know, who has been basically sitting there in house arrest for 16 or 17 years in Burma. How many people know of Aung San Suu Kyi? You know, amazing, just sitting there and very connected with Buddhist practice. And she stands in there for the, um, for the people of Burma with their democratic aspirations against a very brutal regime. And she's won the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize. And she sat there and even, you know, very um, awfully when her, when her husband was dying of cancer, she chose to stay because she said that if, if she left the country, they wouldn't let her back in. And, you know, so this very poignant and deeply committed person, you know, with significant personal suffering who was just staying really committed, you know, and, 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 um, and with, um, with a very close connection with uh, meditative practice as a way to sustain her. So it's a very, you might want to read of some of her work. One of her main books is called Freedom from Fear. You know, sitting there under house arrest for 16 years, very limited movement. And so the, the bodhisattva is all of these beings. Originally, the, the idea of the bodhisattva came from the early tradition. And I wanted to read something about how the bodhisattva appears in the Theravada tradition, which is really the tradition that's come down through Spirit Rock, the, the Buddhism of uh, South and Southeast Asia. And this is um, the origin. This is from a piece that Guy Armstrong wrote. This is the story of how the bodhisattva originates. <laughs> so listen carefully. <laughs> Four incalculables and 100,000 eons before our present age. Which is to say a very, very, very long time ago. <laughs> An ascetic named Sumedha was practicing the path to arhantship, to enlightenment, when he received word that a fully self-awakened one, a Buddha named Deepankara, who is the Buddha, according to Buddhist tradition, Buddhas arise every so often, and Deepankara was the Buddha who arose before uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, who is the historical Buddha from 2,500 years ago. You don't have to believe any of this, but it's, uh, this, is the, this is the tradition. A Buddha named Deepankara was teaching in a town nearby. Sumedha traveled there and found Deepankara Buddha being venerated in a long procession attended by most of the townspeople. Sumedha was immediately touched with deep reverence upon seeing the noble bearing and vast tranquility of the Buddha. He realized that to become an arhant would be of great benefit to humankind, to be enlightened would be of great benefit, but that the benefit to the world of a Buddha was immensely greater. At that very moment, in the presence of Deepankara Buddha, he made a vow to become a Buddha in a future life. This marked his entry into the path of the Bodhisattva, a being who is bound for Buddhahood. Just then, Sumedha noticed that the Buddha was about to walk through a patch of wet mud. Spontaneously, out of great devotion, he threw his body down in the mud and invited the Buddha and his Sangha to walk over him rather than dirty their feet. As the great teacher passed, Deepankara read Sumedha's mind, understood his aspiration, and predicted that the ascetic Sumedha would fulfill his vow to become a Buddha at a time four incalculables and a hundred thousand eons in the future. (laughs) It was also revealed to Sumedha that had he not made the aspiration to become a Buddha, he would have realized full enlightenment that very day by listening to a discourse from Deepankara Buddha. This would have ended Sumedha's own suffering and also his chain of rebirths, according to the tradition. But the Bodhisattva chose instead to devote inconceivable lifetimes of practice to gain the ultimate goal, Buddhahood. So you see there's a distinction here between being enlightened and being a Buddha. Having resolved this goal, Sumedha then retired to his cave to reflect. How can I make this vast journey, he wondered. What aspects of mind and heart do I need to develop in order to become a Buddha? 
As he reflected, he saw that there were 10 wholesome qualities that he would need to be brought to strength and maturity. The factors that came to his mind came one by one. Generosity, ethical virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, equanimity. He called this set the paramis. In, in the Mahayana tradition, it's called the paramitas, which has usually been translated <clears throat> as perfections. He then began the journey of innumerable lifetimes to develop the perfections of mind and heart that finally unfolded in his full enlightenment as Gautama Buddha under the Bodhi tree in northern India more than 2,500 years ago. And interestingly, though, although that story is there in the tradition, the Bodhisattva has not been the center of Theravada tradition. It's the, and even, we don't even find in the discourses of the Buddha a list of those ten virtues, like we find the Four Noble Truths or the other teachings. So it's been a little bit uh, marginalized, even though the teaching of the, the virtues, the perfections, are significant in Theravada tradition. It was left really, in a a way, to Mahayana tradition to say, to make their version of this list of qualities. That's the version which is on the handout that we have, which has about five or six which are the same, and then they just switch a few of the qualities. Uh, Although all the others, I think, are almost implicit. But they made this, um, these paramis for paramitas, the center of all practice. This is what we develop. This is how, this is how we look at our Practice And so that what they basically said was that if you want to be a bodhisattva, you can train in it. As we, were, as we were talking about last time, you can say, how shall I move towards being a bodhisattva? Uh, and here we're thinking about it as a being who's concerned both with inner practice <coughs> and with helping others, which is the way it tended to get interpreted in uh, Mahayana tradition. And they said, you can train by developing in these ten qualities. This can be your, your curriculum. This can be our way of developing. And what we're doing for these weeks is we're focusing on basically two each week. And during the intervening time between the meetings, we can actually take them home and practice them. And hopefully, last week, we focused particularly on the two qualities of um, vow or intention and then patience. How many people practiced some with intention or patience in the last week? And so we can um, continue to do that. And this week I'll give two more. And if you want to just stay with the first two, since you have four incalculables and 100,000 eons, you know, what's the difference of one or two weeks? (laughs) Uh, If you want to stay with that and say, I really connected with vow or intention, I want to stay with that for the next month. That can be really helpful. But I'm going I'm to give these anyway. But the point is here that we can train in these qualities, that we can really uh, focus on them. And it's usually, I think, best to just focus on one or two at a time so that really, we really can keep a focus so that we're, you know, in the morning, like if we're working with a vow or intention, we can do as we did at the beginning of the sitting. We can sit there and say, let me tune into my intention for this sitting. You might even ask right now, what's my intention right now for hearing the talk. And I mentioned that there were these two aspects of vow or intention. One is the moment-to-moment quality of having an intention. And we can have an intention for the sitting. You can work on intention. You go to a meeting. You have a talk with your friend. It doesn't mean anything very elaborate. It can just be to take 15 seconds or 30 seconds and say, what do I want to intend right for this gathering? I have this business meeting. What do I want to, what's my intention? You know, it might be something simple. It might be, I want to listen to what other people say. It could be something very simple like that. Or I want to, uh, I want to really um, use a wise speech. I want to really try to speak carefully and truthfully and, and, with, and, and work on my timing a little bit. <laughs> you know? um, which is a part of right speech or wise speech. So, uh, we could work with that, or we could work the other aspect of uh, vow or intention is connecting with what we might call aspiration, that sense of our 
larger aspiration. It could be for our life or for this period of time. It might be the aspiration really to keep learning or to awaken or to um, be of benefit to others. Whatever language captures something. You know, there's, there's, when we work with aspiration, we're really asking for the um, kind of the images which most deeply motivate us, the images or the phrases. Um, Albert, Albert Camus said that it was really important to be in touch with the images or the uh, understandings that first opened our hearts. You know, in our own life history, we've had moments when certain qualities of our heart opened. And, and Camus said that to really be in touch with one's true vocation is to have a connection with those uh, those uh, inspirations that were connected with our heart openings, or we might say our, our mind openings. And so that's partly what we do when we, when we connect with aspiration. We remember it. You know, and sometimes we have to uh, go to a quiet place to remember. Sometimes there's, there's too much busyness or noise, right? And it's hard to remember. Things, you know, we get too distracted. That's why, you know, with, with Robin's question, sometimes when we're in a difficult time, it's really helpful just to connect with our deep aspiration. It kind of brings us back a little bit because we get we can get really distracted, and the uh, you know there just can be so much noise in our system that we don't remember our deeper aspiration, and so we can we can come back to that. And we also worked last time with the teaching about patience, which is uh, interesting that it's on the list of ten, isn't it? I mean, it's it's uh, it's. It's this quality of, uh, in, the, in the traditional teachings, is particularly connected with being able to be patient with uh, difficult experiences, both related, to, well, all difficult experiences are related to oneself, but it could be both internal experiences, you know, it might be that experience of upheaval, or it could be also being with people or situations that make, that make things really hard. And so patience is classically connected with that. I mentioned the, the teaching of the eight worldly winds, this teaching that uh, particularly difficult for us are the conditions of uh, the eight worldly winds, which are the conditions of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. I think for me, praise and blame are the hardest. <laughs> Maybe for many of us. <laughs> And basically, what's interesting is that we actually need patience. It's most dramatic when things are difficult, when we have to be with um, you know, fear, or we have to be with um, physical pain. But it's interesting that patience, I think, is also a quality that we develop when we have uh, pleasant experiences. Because I think that we could think of patience being necessary so we don't just act in a greedy way. You know, if I'm, if I'm there and I'm feeling a lot of greed develop, there would be some patience that actually has me not just reach for, you know, whatever, whatever it is. If it's the, um, uh, I don't know, um, having, you know, having a third piece of chocolate cake or something, which in some situations is very skillful. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but in other situations, it would not be so skillful. And it's part of, it's part of patience to really uh, be able to sort of be there and not just follow the urge. It's really to have that kind of patience. It's kind of this, kind of this broad view, which really points to the way that patience is, is, has to be also linked with the wisdom, wisdom quality. That patience in its maturity is quite wise. And we can think of that in a few very basic ways, that uh, part of patience is actually to know the reality of impermanence. It's to know that, okay, this is hard now, but it's going to change. And uh, it would be, so patience is supported by wisdom, you see. It's really, or it might be to have the, uh, the patience might might be really supported by seeing in one's own experience or in, let's say, an interpersonal or a social situation, that everything has causes and conditions. You know, and we can't expect the causes and conditions to be exactly like I want them. You know, if I'm looking at uh, 
I mean, it's very clear with something like social injustice, that we look to the world and we see that the causes and conditions which led to the current situation are many hundreds of years in the making. You know, whether, whether we look to racism or look to um, poverty or look to foreign policy or whatever, it's not to say we don't act. So patience isn't about being <laughs> passive and so forth. It's, it's a kind of interesting combination of having the, the wise capacity to look at a situation and have some patience, which ultimately is going to be really important for bodhisattva. You know, I think of Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka, who looked at the uh, civil war happening in Sri Lanka between the Tamils and the majority Sinhalese. And he, he looked at the situation. Everyone's wanting a quick fix and to end things. And he said, the origins of this conflict were 500 years in the making. You know, there had to do with colonialism and with a lot of different causes. And he said, if we want to really work with the situation, we need a 500-year plan. And he, he has one. You can go to the website of his organization and you can read their 500-year plan. So it's like, okay, we spend you know, a few years just ending the violence. You know, and then we have to work with some healing. You know, and that's going to take some time. And then we have to help uh, repair that's with that of the infrastructure which has been damaged. And then we probably need about uh, 50 years to really develop a, a more healthy culture. And then at least 100 years to really work on the economic infrastructure so it's really actually supportive. And you, you get it, right? <laughs> that it's really, and he has this long view, but also it can coexist with really acting right in the moment. But, but you can see how having that sense of history even and this long view really helps with patience. You know, you, you have so it's that sense of things are, well, I'm having a hard time now or we have a setback here, but we, um, we have this long sense of, of what it takes and we, we, we know that there are going to be ups and downs and it really helps to kind of stabilize us, not to be so reactive to when something doesn't go wrong. And that's hard, right? But that's, that's part of patience. And it really points to how that's helped by the, the wisdom factor. And the two factors I wanted to talk further about are actually quite connected with what I was just talking about. And those are meditation and wisdom. And I think I want to talk uh, next time particularly about the, the, the skillful action of the bodhisattva. You know, we focused on some of the almost foundational perspectives, the sense of um, the intention, the vow, the, ener- the um, aspiration. Then we also have this patience, this ability to stay with it. You know, if you're going to hang around for four incalculables and a thousand eons, uh, well, you better have some patience to start with, but, but actually part of what's developed is patience. You know? and, and for us, it could be you know, just being with a difficult situation at work for two years or something like that, or working, being with that situation. So meditation and wisdom are named in the, in the, in the list, uh, the Mahayana list. And I think medit- meditation, some kind of training of the mind, just becomes so crucial for bodhisattva. It's basically saying that bodhisattvas need to have a spiritual practice. You know? If you're interested in combining this inner work with helping others, it's really important to have some kind of disciplined way that we come back to our own inner work. You know, and that can take a lot of different forms, but one of the main forms is meditation. And, and in, in our tradition here, we work especially with mindfulness and with loving-kindness, that we strengthen mindfulness as the ability to see clearly in the moment and to really be really familiar with a lot of different patterns. It's to, it's to be able to be mindful of our bodies, to be able to be mindful of our emotions, of our thoughts. It's to be able to be mindful of the patterns of our experience. It's really to say, if I'm going to be a bodhisattva, I need to really study my own experience really carefully. I need to study what causes suffering. I need to study what makes suffering um, less likely to happen. I need to be able to be familiar particularly with that which um, is hard for me. So a big part of the meditation training for a bodhisattva is similar to what we were talking about with, with patients. It's the ability actually to really be mindful and know difficult states. 
like anger or pain or agitation or restlessness or fear or judgment or sadness. So we could say that when one way that's beautiful of reframing our experience is to say, okay, fear is coming up. Oh, another lesson in my bodhisattva training. <laughs> See, it reframes things, which is, which is hard, isn't it? It's hard to do that. It's hard to reframe it and because we have these strong inclinations just for everything to go perfectly. Have you noticed that... <laughs> I, I don't even need to finish the sentence, right? Have you noticed that there's something a little delusive about that? <laughs> and so this is... So the, the, the aim of our practice is not for everything to go perfect, but it's rather to be as skillful and wise and compassionate with whatever is happening as we can be. And for that, we need this training. And so particular importance is to train in, is to take our, our um, arisings of the difficult experiences and to be able to work with them. So it, it becomes really interesting to, to look at fear. So to do that, as we were talking about in the, before the talk and with Robin's question, was um, to really to really see, okay, I'm having agitation. Well, this is, let me see, how do I work skillfully with it? Because my experience is that if we really have this uh, deep experience of working with a challenging state, that it actually stays with us. And we, you know, it's, um, and for me, one of the experiences I've had in retreats is, I don't know if it works, I think it works similarly for a lot of people, but one of the nice things about retreats is that we have a very supportive environment. So we might have a five-day or seven-day retreat. And quite a number of times I've had the retreats, especially in my first years of practicing, I just was given like one challenging state on one retreat. Luckily, just one, typically one at a time. Although they're, they're mixed in, but I would just have fear. I remember I had one retreat which was really had just a lot of fear. And I got to study it. You know, because there was a lot of support, and I got to study it and, and explore the nature of fear, and to um, have some courage to just be with it. You know, Jack Kornfield likes to talk about fear as announcing the next important learning that you're about to have if you stay with it. You know, you can interpret fear as, oh, what am I going to learn now? Some important learning of the heart. And for me, just to be able to watch fear and to see the, the way my mind worked. You know, it was actually to, to see that a lot of my fear was just a mental buildup that was kind of like a house of cards. But if I actually stayed with the situation, a lot of the fear disappeared. It was like that uh, statement by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in, I think in the middle of World War II, that uh, what we have most to fear is fear itself, or that we most fear. So it's actually, we're actually more afraid of fear than actually of the content of the fear. And one of the great secrets that I have found in meditation practice is that my fears often are really old and they came, they're, they're there because of some maybe previous time. I might even when I was young, when something was really big and I got really afraid of it. But that one of the benefits of meditation is that we sit with the fears and we actually find they're not, you know, that what's way bigger is the, uh, is the projection or the imagination. And so a lot of times I've sat with, you know, I don't know, it might be, um, well, I'll tell one story. Okay. Uh, and this was, um, it's a true story. And it's my story. <laughs> and this was, I was sitting a long retreat, I was in England, and it was, um, I was choosing to go into more solitude. It was a three-month retreat. And I had sat for a month and um, joined in on some other retreats and sat in the meditation hall. This was actually in England and at uh, Gaia House in southwest England. And I was sitting there and I found myself um, uh, wanting to have a little more solitude, which meant mostly to just take my meals in my room. Uh, I had a little cottage, like a very small cottage in the garden. And I wanted to just do my meditations just in the cottage and take my meals in the cottage. And when I first started doing this, I had been meditating for a month, so I was fairly concentrated. And I took the, I 
started taking my meals and I found my body just starting to feel, fill with a nausea and feel really tight and constricted. And it wasn't connected with any particular uh, mind state that I knew about or even emotional state. It was just, I was just getting filled with um, tension and constriction and, and a sense of nausea. And it pretty much stayed with me you know, once I started taking the meals in, my, in, my, in the cottage. And I would sit with it and it would still pretty much be there. I was still fairly still, so it wasn't, it wasn't um, incapacitating me. But it was, you know, it was hard and it was pretty unpleasant. And this lasted for about three days. And then I had an interview with uh, Christopher Titmus, And he asked me, um, he heard what I was saying, what I was experiencing. And he asked me, if you look at the model of the seven factors of enlightenment, which, which we've uh, studied um, at the time of the summer solstice here, I remember. And we studied it for two weeks here. And the, the model is the model of the qualities of an enlightened being. It's a little different list than the <clears throat> list of the uh, perfections or the paramis. And the, the, the list is mindfulness and energy and uh, joy or rapture and inquiry and tranquility and concentration and equanimity. And he said, if you look at those, what feels not present? And I said, joy. (laughs) Joy doesn't feel present. And so he said, "Um, why don't you do what brings back joy? And just do that in the next few days. And so when I asked that, I I know it'll bring back joy. I'll, I'll, I'll basically eat with the other people and I'll go out in nature. I won't stay so much in my cottage and I'll go out and I'll look at the spider webs and the, spend more time just contemplating nature. And because I knew that there was something about that I had kind of crossed some internal boundary that I didn't even really know about when I went into more sol- solitude, which brought up fear. And it brought up, it brought up fear and it had a lot of um, somatic manifestations. And so, um, so I did that. And, I, and the nausea went away right away in my body, and I felt a lot of joy. And I went back, uh, you know, just, you know, the energy changed. I felt joy. I was very happy just walking around looking at spider webs and meditating, you know, fair amount. But, but it, was, it was different, and eating with the group. And so I kind of did that for four or five days, and I was having interviews about every three or four days. I think I had the interview on a Monday, and um, Thursday I had an interview with Christina Feldman, who, who teaches here. Uh, as well as Christopher teaches here also. And with um, Christina said, heard my accounts, and oh, yeah, Joyce, that sounds good. He said, what about the fear? I said, whoops, that's right. He said, do you want to go look at the fear? And I said, uh, or I think she said it, I think she suggested it was a good idea to look at it. <laughs> and, and so I said, I think you're right. And I knew instantly what would bring back that state. It would be, the, it would be to um, stop having my meals with the other people and just come back to that quality of solitude. And, and so I think I had the interview with her like in the afternoon on a Thursday. And I said, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, have my, um, I'll take my meal um, in, uh, just with myself. But I think I'll... No, I think, I think I had the interview with her like Friday morning. Friday morning, and I said, I don't think I'll have lunch here. <laughs> I think I'm going to postpone it. <laughs> you, know, I, I'm, you know, we talked like at 10 in the morning, and it would have been natural just to say, okay, well, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring back my meal and just sit in my room. We'll do that at the noon meal. But I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and so I said, but I, I said I'd do it for dinner. You know, I was kind of putting it off, so it, I think probably gathering my strength, right? And so I, you know, for the next hours, I read books, I sort of said, okay, when that nausea comes, I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to really marshal my forces, I'm going to have all this mindfulness, and you know, just really be a strong bodhisattva, you know, and really do it, and I'm going to grapple with the um, nausea, and I can do it, and I, I'm willing to look at the fear, and, and so forth. And so I really, I read books, I marshaled, I took walks, and gathered my forces and energy, and then, you know, dinner time came, and I went and got my food, and I brought it back, and um, you know, it's interesting how the psyche works, how there are these small things which kind of trip a wire or something, right? And they just send us in some, into some difficult state. And so I, I brought back, I kind of was ginger, I sat down, 
started to eat, I just was waiting for the nausea to come and for the, for the really difficult states to come. And um, um, nothing ever happened. <laughs> not that evening and not for the next two months. I experienced no more nausea and I had nothing, and none of the physical manifestations were there one bit. What do you make of that? <laughs> uh, what I made of it, that there was something actually in the willingness to face fear. That was actually, it was the willingness to face it, that actually, what was actually there in the fear was way less than my fear of it. You know, it's that sense of... Um, the demons have power when we believe in the power of the demons. Something like that. And so it's, it's really part of this idea, and I, I, think I realize I'm just going to stay with mindfulness and not get to wisdom, but you see we're, they're, they're connected. <laughs> that there's something about that when we... So when I had that experience and got to study fear, and we can do that with other difficult emotions, we study in mindfulness, something shifts in our in our um, consciousness, because we really have gone into our own experience in a deep way. So it's why, so you can imagine that someone who's done that, or gone into fear, or gone into anger, when that person is a bodhisattva in action, and fear comes up, it's not the same as it once was. Or when anger comes up, or when um, some really difficult state comes up. We, you know, it's not to say that everything's totally a piece of cake. You know, it still can be hard, but there's some learning that's happened that's broken through a lot of the conditioning. And so that's a very fundamental aspect of the meditation training of a bodhisattva. It's to really be able to see uh, the difficult states, to be able to be mindful of them, to work with them, to understand them, and to be able to bring that out into daily life experiences, to be able to call upon mindfulness, to call upon loving-kindness, to really support oneself, to to be there when things are difficult, and to somehow carry that quality of mindfulness and loving-kindness more and more into daily life. So we can think of the the meditation training not just as something we do on the cushion, but something that we do whenever we bring the quality of mindfulness just into being with a friend, you know, or being being at a difficult um, work situation where someone has said something that really triggers me, right? And I can say, okay, Donald, mindfulness says you're feeling triggered or you're feeling angry or your mind's going a mile a minute after that comment. And mindfulness, the training, lets us work with that. And so it's just, and that, so that's, that's the training that a bodhisattva, that's the third training I'm mentioning that a bodhisattva does. There's the connection with the intention, the vow. There's also the connection with uh, patience. And you can see how they're all interconnected. You know, that the the mindfulness and the awareness, the study of our experience is so crucial for our training. And so what we can do is to really think, maybe, maybe for the next week it might just be to, to make a further commitment to be mindful, both into formal practice and really stay with it. That, that would be a significant taking on of the bodhisattva training. Or it might be, to, if that's already stabilized, it might be to say, let me make a little more effort to bring mindfulness into my everyday life you know, at work or with friends, and see how to do that. So this is, this is our training. This is our training as bodhisattvas. And again, use the language that works for you to see how you would describe yourself. And... Um, this is what Kwani and Manny had to do <laughs> on their work <laughs> to, uh, to keep on developing. It's really to say, this is how I develop. Let me make a commitment to keep on working with, with um, intention, with patience, and with meditation. So, thank you. Any, any reflections or questions? Please, Pauletta. Yeah. 
Yeah. How the question is how to be with fear outside of uh, a retreat situation. Well, it's pretty much the same, you know, and I think it would be to, I mean, it depends on the intensity. That, let's say, if it, if you, would, would you be comfortable being more specific about something you're working with? You don't have to be. No. Oh. Okay. Oh, yeah. I do it. Yeah. I go through it, but I'm working with the fear while I'm on an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, how many people have some variant of that, or some some situation that arouses fear? It doesn't have to be an airplane, but you go to you know I don't know, see your in-laws or something. <laughs> um, so. What's interesting is that uh, the tool of meditation in working with fear, even though my story, the, the fear actually left, I think the, the, um, and so the, the practice is really to, to be able to be mindful and stay with the fear. So it's, it's that, you know, I haven't done mountain climbing, but I've been told that mountain climbers uh, have fear. They just can work with it so it's not disabling or paralyzing. So one way of working with it would simply to be mindful, to name it, and especially to watch that it doesn't um, just take you over, right? That, it, that it, it's to be really mind, so, so we can study, so you could study the, study the fear and see, okay, where does the fear go? Or does it lead to catastrophic thinking? And then do I just stay there for a long time? And when you study the process, it, you could actually try to stay more even with the, the somatic and the energetic qualities of fear because it's somehow the, the catastrophic thinking that is connected with fear sometimes just takes us over and we're like in a trance, right? right. And so if you can actually stay with the... Um, if you can stay mindful enough to, and just to use the label, this is fear. You know, there may be situations like, like mountain climbers where... Um, because of the situation, there might be fear and it might just continue. You know, you might, you might find that that changes. Uh, but you, but the, the main thing is to be skillful with what's happening. So, med- again, we, we sometimes think um, that meditation will just get rid of all negative things and just have positive things. I'm not saying you're thinking that, but I think all of us have some of that in it. We just think, oh, it's this magic wand. No fear. <laughs> You know, you know, no delusion, just happiness. You know, I, I certainly thought, you know, I certainly thought when I started meditating, I thought that, okay, I do a year of this and I'm just in bliss for the rest of my life. Has anyone ever had, anyone had that thought? <laughs> uh, so that was 30 years ago. <laughs> and so, so to, be with, to, be with the, uh, to be with the fear, to study it, to watch what your mind does, to watch your own particular patterns, and to... If you notice that there is that pattern of it getting triggered, to know how to, it is skillful to sometimes cut those patterns if you can. Um, you could also do a loving kindness or compassion practice. That, that just really brings out the, the compassion. So that, those are some starters. And as you do that, you could also, as you're studying fear, you can reflect on it, what's its nature. How does it work? So those are those are a few suggestions. Thanks, Paul. It's a great question. You might just, uh, if you want to report something that you found in working with uh, intention or uh, with patience, that would be also helpful. Just to report one of your experiences and how you've worked with that. Please, yeah. Well, I had come to a day long a couple of weeks ago on metta, so I decided yeah. that anything that was less than patience, I yeah. would do metta for, and I found it really easy with the construction workers to, yeah. you know, have to slow down. I find myself even going slower so I get all of the phrases in. Yeah, that's great. But then I had a, 
a really, really challenging situation yeah. of someone yelling at me and losing their temper. Yeah. Completely inappropriate. And I would, the time I think about it still, it's like, oh, that jerk. And then, then I'll do the phrases for him. But it's really challenging when, yeah. when it's big yeah. to do that. Yeah. So. yeah. Did everyone hear the reflections and, the, and in a way, the question? It, it was that um, doing the working with patience by applying metta or loving kindness at moments when you became impatient, mm -hmm. whether it was whatever, traffic or something holding you up or whatever. <coughs> and that seemed to work, but when someone was uh, yelling at you in ways that you thought inappropriate, uh, it wasn't, there wasn't so much patience or, or so much um, easy to do metta. Right, I found it really hard, but I do find that it's yeah. transforming how I yeah. approach the situation. Yeah. Because it's not resolved yet. It's so. not resolved. Well, if you're working with the tool of metta, I would suggest maybe doing metta more towards yourself. I do both. Yeah. I'll go back and forth. And I wouldn't even, you know, when we teach metta, we say, um, do metta first towards yourself, and then where it really flows. And then when you're really, really developed, you've, then you do it with uh, difficult people, but you choose a moderately or mildly difficult person. So you're going for the... Right, for the hardest. But I do think that I can generate <laughs> yeah. that energy yeah. towards the person, yeah. but I still find that their behavior is unacceptable. Yeah, and that's... that's um, uh, that's independent of your metta. You, so you can still, again, patience can be very um, clear, firm, and uh, take a stand. Right. right. And so I think sometimes we think that to be patient is to be passive. Or, or I'm not saying you do or that, but, but it's just we... Yeah, many, many of us do. In the same ways that we associate love with not being strong. You know, or that... Love means being codependent or something, you know, or, or um, not standing up when something is really wrong. And so, uh, but in terms of the, uh, the inner state, uh, it might be really helpful just maybe just to build up a little more. Because it sounds like you do have a capacity for the metta towards... Right, I've, I've yeah. set a couple metta yeah. trees. Yeah, so yeah but, but toward, towards, even towards this really difficult situation. Right, I can... Yeah. But but let we yeah so but it sounds like you're doing actually great, and but we shouldn't necessarily expect the metta and the patience to be with that situation. Right, and I also realize I can't expect the metta to change this person, which that, is what we kind of hope for. I think. Really okay, I think we've come up against to an important point here. <laughs> it's not going to make it. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's where bodhisattvas are very cognizant of causes and conditions. And the causes, and, you know, and they can, they can uh, have a lot of, even, even one's own causes and conditions are sometimes hard to impact, but we have more ability to do that. But yeah, with other people, um, the fact that I'm mindful doesn't necessarily mean the other person is just um, sweet, wonderful, and not yelling at you. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really important insight because we sometimes we think if I'm a really first-rate bodhisattva, everyone else is going to fall in line. Because <laughs> the uh, the bodhisattva, the final training is an equanimity, and the the line that I work with in equanimity is no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Right, I worked with that line. Yeah, that's a that's an important one. Um, that's where the patience comes back again. That we, we and it's really hard because we sit there and we say, "Why can't that person just not yell at me like that, or know that that's unacceptable, or immediately apologize and just come back and and say, you know, this was totally out of line. I'm really sorry. You're actually a great person doing wonderful practices for me." Right. That's what you hope for. Yeah. Um, it's good to know that that's what one's hoping for. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's where patience comes in. So these are great questions and reflections and, and, uh, and challenging. So, so Bodhisattva training camp, which is, you know, maybe our training camp for the next four incalculables and 100,000 eons. <laughs> um, 
as they say, um, pack your lunch. <laughs> so we'll we'll close now just with um, sitting for a short a short while. And we'll we'll continue um, moving to I think I'll try to work with wisdom and see if I can bring in um, skillful action as well. But we'll continue with the looking at the qualities of the of training for someone who wants to connect inner work with helping others. And I'll invite for the next week that further exploration. I would say work with one at most two qualities. And so if you want to stay with intention and vow, just checking in with that in the morning or before an activity. What's my aspiration generally or in this particular activity? Or if you want to work with patience in some way, it might be like we were hearing to work with loving-kindness when, when, when uh, impatience arises, or some other way. It might be to, in the morning, work with the intention, I'm going to really work on patience today. Or if we want to really come back to meditation and say, I'm going to really make a commitment to have mindfulness and maybe loving-kindness also, as a formal practice, and then I'll try to bring it out into my life as much as I can. And so just to sit with whatever may have struck you or impacted you this morning, and your intentions for the next, next week. We close by remembering that we, we explore, we practice, we work with the qualities of vow, intention, patience, meditation, not just for ourselves, but for others. And we offer the benefits of the morning to others for their healing, for their transformation, and for their freedom. Thank you, and may the, may the next week be really um, beautiful exploration. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.